Thank you, Jim. I want to invite our children to uh, Children's Church. If you want to meet your teacher in the back for an age-appropriate setting to hear the scriptures. Um, Let me just, before I pray and we start in the text, let me just explain a little something. If you look at your bulletin, it goes all the way through the end of chapter 13. Um, because that's the story. That's the entire story. But in preparation, I just realized, man, we'll be here till two. And, you know, I'm good with that. But we have a wedding shower to shower a wedding as if. And so I don't want to, you know, take all our time. So where I'm breaking it, it's really uncomfortable for me to break it there because that's not the end of the thought. And one of my approaches to preaching is what I call these, these thought units or these, these big ideas. If you want the fancy seminary term, it's pericope. It's, if you write it down, it looks like pericope because I pronounced it that way until I heard somebody say pericope. A pericope is a story. It's, it's this whole encased story. And so really what we're doing from verse 13 through the end of the chapter is one story. But we're going to break it. We're going to stop after Paul's preaching. So uh, that's why I had Jim read through verse 41. The bulletin has the whole thing. And the bulletin next week will have the whole thing again. Because I want us to try to keep that all together as one thought in our mind. So uh, just a little explanation. Let's go to prayer, and then we'll take a look at the, the portion of the text that we have in front of us. Father, we, uh, we live in a broken world. Uh, Lord, you have uh, sent your son into this broken world to redeem us, uh, to call a people to yourself. But in the meantime, between his first coming and his second, Lord, we're still here, and it's still broken. And Lord, we saw that this week in our nation with a gunman shooting up a synagogue and killing 17 people. Lord, what a horrific thing to do. Um, the, the, the paranoia that the man had, the idea that these, these uh, uh, Jews in the synagogue were somehow endangering our nation and that he was going to be our savior. Lord, it's terrifying. And then, Father, another man tries to go into a black church and instead goes to a Kroger's and shoots two men because he's paranoid about black people, that they're going to be a threat to him. And then, Father, this, this madman sending these homemade bombs that, that look like something off of a TV show because he doesn't agree with the politics of the people is, again, we thank you for the mercy that those bombs didn't go off. But those were real bombs. They weren't just you know toilet paper tubes filled with, uh, with stuffing. Lord, these were potentially lethal things. And thank you for the mercy there. But Lord, I pray for our nation because when I look at these events, especially condensed like this into one week, Lord, I see what a divided, fractured nation we are. That we think the only way we can deal with the other, with the person we don't understand, the person not like us, is to kill them. Lord, that's a terrifying thing. That is the destruction of a civilization when that's our answer for any problem, is to destroy the other. So, Lord, would you have mercy on us as a people, as, as the United States of America, Lord, this, this great experiment in democracy, this great experiment in human freedom. Lord, would you have mercy on us and lead us to a place where we have a common vision and we don't see those we disagree with as evil, as worthy of death, but simply those we don't agree with. Um, Lord, have mercy on our nation. And, and Father, I know There are political answers and there are people offering all sorts of responses to this. Greater gun control, greater security, greater this, greater that. Lord, the answer to all these problems lies where the problem begins, which is in a wicked human heart. 
in a broken human heart, in a heart that is so afraid to be exposed that they have to vilify others. And Lord, the answer to that issue is not better controls, better regulation, better security. Lord, the answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so would you empower, equip your church in America to once again clearly speak the truth of the gospel? Lord, would you teach us to, pre- to preach that truth in a way that our culture could hear and understand? And Lord, I pray that we would grow as a body of believers to trust in that message above and beyond the politics, as necessary as they are, to trust in you. And so, Lord, would you fit us with that? To that end, Father, I'm grateful for this message that we get today, this wonderful example of how to preach the gospel in a a situation, in a culture, in a context. And so, Lord, would you send your spirit to be with us? Uh, Lord, as my stammering words we just sang, uh, would you make them make sense? Um, Help us to see your scriptures clearly and to trust you more because we see that you are active that you're living, that you're working, that you haven't abandoned us to our own foolishness. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ooh, sorry about that. That was kind of a cool sound. I may do that again if I see everybody falling asleep. No, I won't. Um, so, um, like I said, this, this is going to break up this section. Where we're at in this, do you remember what we did last week? We saw Paul and, uh, and Barnabas launched on their first missionary journey, and they go to Cyprus. And they didn't even mention what, what Paul said or did in, in the first place he stopped, in Salamis. But when he gets to Paphos, then all of a sudden it slows down. And what that was was an empower encounter between the natural and the supernatural. Paul's message coming in, this prophet, this false prophet opposing it, and God stepping in and blinding the man for a period of time. So the first part of this missionary journey, what Luke wants to show us, what he holds up before us, is the power of the supernatural here, that Jesus has an effect beyond simply an an intellectual process. And I was kind of waiting, like, well, when do we get to hear what Paul had to say, the words that he said, because that's an important part of it as well. Where it ended last week was Sergius Paulus believed what Paul had said. What did Paul say? Well, fortunately, Luke doesn't leave us hanging. And so this week, what we get to see is Paul's gospel. And, and just like he slowed down with the, um, the uh, false prophets Elamis, Elimus, Elimus, I forget how I pronounced it last week, insert that now. Um, just like he slowed down and focused on that, this week he's going to slow down way down, and we're going to hear the fullness of Paul's gospel. And so this is really good news. This is going to be really helpful for us. Uh, what we'll see in this section is there's going to be a brief introduction, kind of setting up where he went to preach it. Then we'll see how Paul preaches the gospel, and he does it through history, through proof, and then finally through application. So that's where he's going to go with his gospel message. So the introduction, um, starting in verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga to Antioch and Pisidia. So can you throw the map up really quick? Just to orient us again. So down here is Cyprus. The bottom there is Paphos. That was the old capital of the, the uh, or that was the capital of the, the island of uh, Cyprus. So they set sail from there and they head north to Perga. Perga was a port city in that area right there called Pamphylia. Those dotted lines, they're almost like a state. It's hard to really nail down what these things were under Roman rule because they weren't autonomous, separate nations, but they were like nation states that were there. So Pamphylia is that area right down below it. The section above it 
where Antioch is, is actually considered Galatia. So remember when, when you see the book of Galatians, he's talking to churches in that area. Now, one of the things it says is that he went to Antioch in Pisidia. Um, there was the Antioch that sent them out. Remember, that was over towards the other side of the screen in Syria. This is Antioch in Pisidia. Why are there two Antiochs? Bad news, folks, there are five Antiochs. <laughs> Antioch uh, Epiphanes was a, a great military Roman ruler um, in the times before Christ, and so he got a lot of stuff named after him, so it, it could get confusing. Now, Pisidia, you see, is smaller, and it's kind of on an angle, and it's inside the, the region of Galatia. The history behind that, real briefly, is Pisidia used to be its own area, its own like nation state. But it got conquered about 32 BC and was just kind of considered part of Galatia and kind of absorbed into it. But you notice that Luke mentions it as if people knew where that was. People still referred to this Antioch as Antioch Pisidia rather than the one in Syria because that's the area. So it's not its own official ruling area, but it was still a known thing. So here's the question. Why would Paul sail from Paphos to Perga and then head up to Antioch. Why was that the route he took? Here's the thing. Perga is almost sea level. Since it's a, it's a port city, it's almost at sea level. When Paul heads north out of Perga heading towards Antioch, he's got to go through this mountain range and he's going to climb from almost sea level to almost a mile high. This was not just an easy trek. The way Luke tells it, because he's rushing to get to, G, to uh, Paul's speech, is it seems like it was just, you know, hop on the bus and get off a minute later or something. But this was a, an arduous trek for him to head through those mountains and to climb all the way up there. This was not an easy thing. So why did he do it? Why didn't he, why didn't he head to Ephesus? He could have sailed out of Paphos, sailed around to the other side of um, Turkey and landed at Ephesus, a major port city, a major city within the empire, and he could have preached there. He does eventually, but why not now? Why head to Antioch? So here's some theories. Uh, one of the ideas is that Sergius Paulus, we, remember we don't know his first name, that was kind of his family designation. Sergius Paulus, who's the proconsul at Paphos, his family was well known in Antioch. They were well established there. So it could be that what happened was after Paul preached to Sergius Paulus and the man believed the man said, you know what, I have family who would really love to hear this message. If you go to Antioch They'll get to know you. They'll, they'll receive, here, I'll write you a letter of recommendation so that you can meet these people. So it could be that, that Paul did that. Now, one of the, you know, smarty pants uh, commentators said, well, obviously, you know, the author of Luke, or the author of Acts, won't even call him Luke, um, was uh, put all the impetus on the Holy Spirit. But the truth is, it was just Sergius Paulus. <laughs> like, okay, smarty pants, first of all, Luke wrote it. Second of all, why can't it be both? Why couldn't it be that, that because the Holy Spirit saved Sergius Paulus, probably Lucius Sergius Paulus, that he would then say, hey, go to my family. And that might be the reason Paul would make that kind of a journey. That's not out of the realm of possibility. So that's possibly why he went up there. Either way, it was still the Holy Spirit leading him to this place. More on that, that connection in a little bit. So notice here it says, Paul and his companions. Do you remember how we launched his missionary journey? Barnabas and Saul headed out. They said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul left. Now, all of a sudden, we get to this point, and it's Saul and his companions have traveled here. 
once Paul was in the mission field, he gained ascendancy. He became the chief spokesman. Suddenly, he was the one that we're listening to. That's how he moves really into the spotlight in Acts, is because he's going to do most of the teaching. Now, there's a little phrase in there that says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Remember last week we said John Mark went with them on that journey. He traveled through Cyprus to help them. And what I said last week, it wasn't like he was handing out the bulletins and setting up the chairs. John Mark was probably engaged in teaching the crowds as people came and gathered. So he was, he was part of the mission. He was an integral part of the mission. Now, for some reason, he leaves. Now, you who know the rest of the story, get that out of your head for the moment. <laughs> we have no idea. Luke hasn't told us why he's left. He simply says he went home. He didn't go back to Cyprus. He, he, goes, he didn't go to Antioch where he joined him. He goes all the way back to Jerusalem. So not sure why yet he did that, but that's what happened is he, he heads home. And so um, that's kind of the setup. That's where they're at. Probably took him a long time to get to Antioch. We breeze right through it. So Luke focuses now on, on what they did when they got there. So they get to Antioch, and what happens? On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So he doesn't even mention meeting Sergius Paulus's family. That's just a theory. He may have. But he didn't only go and say, well, I'm going to hang out with the rich and powerful here. He's a good Jew. He goes to synagogue on the Sabbath. And so he walks into the synagogue. He and Barnabas walk in and sit down. And then it says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent them a message. On the Sabbath, they would read from the Bible publicly in, in the synagogue. They would read it out loud. Now, Antioch in Pisidia was predominantly uh, Hellenized. It was mostly Greek. Uh, there's well-documented Jewish uh, presence there from the times before Christ, from about 30 or 40 B.C. That's well-documented that there were large Jewish population there, but there was still a minority. And so if they're in this synagogue and Paul walks in and sits down, as they're reading the, the scriptures, if they read it in Hebrew, they would read it and then they would interpret. They would have to tell them what the Hebrew was because they didn't speak Hebrew. Or it might be that this synagogue used what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So whatever it is, they read from the Law and Prophets and then the rulers of the synagogue. Now, some of these fuzzy-eared, intelligent people who are much more intelligent than I am look at that and go, well, here's, an, here's another error. The rulers of the synagogue, there was only one ruler in the synagogue. This is clearly, Luke doesn't understand you know, what was going on. Okay, time out. There were rulers in the synagogue. There were more than one, especially in a larger synagogue. Sometimes a husband and wife team would be called the rulers of the synagogue. Now, what normally happened, what, what the fuzzy-eared scholar is thinking of is normally on a Sabbath, there would be one person who would be leading the synagogue. There would be one, they would be referred to as the ruler of the synagogue, and they would be leading that day. But in a larger synagogue, there may be more than one person who's in charge, who's making decisions for the synagogue. So this is not an error. If somebody points that as an error, just laugh at them. Laugh them to scorn. That's what it says in the Bible. That's biblical. Do that. Um, the rulers then look to, to these new guys who just walked in. Maybe they've heard of Paul before because he had a great teaching ministry in Jerusalem. Maybe he's, they're familiar with him. And they say, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for us, say it. So this was common practice in a synagogue is they would do a handful of different things. They would read the scriptures, 
often they would interpret them, they would you know, translate them, and then somebody would stand up and speak on them. So Paul's in town, they ask him to stand up and preach. Tell us, tell us what you have to say. And so this is the setup. This is, this is the moment we've been waiting for. I don't know about you, the moment I've been waiting for. Paul, what have you got to say? They just handed him the mic. The spotlight swung to him. What's he going to do? What he does is just brilliant. So first of all, he's going to tell them the gospel. He's going to tell them about Jesus Christ, but he starts with history. And so I'm not going to read that whole section of history again. Um, just make some notes. Uh, first of all, the people he addresses, he calls men of Israel and you who fear God. And then he says, listen. So men of Israel, he's talking about the children of Abraham, the Jews that were there, and you who fear God. We've mentioned this before, but this is, this is worth repeating. These would be Gentiles who did not become Jewish. They would come to the synagogue. They would have to sit in a different portion of the synagogue. They hadn't gone through super circumcision. They hadn't become full Jews yet. They were referred to as God-fearers or you who fear God. So these are people who are interested in Judaism and, and are there to listen and to hear. And so Paul addresses them. He calls them out. He doesn't just say, my brothers of Abraham. He addresses the entire crowd that's before him. Jew and Gentile alike, listen. This is important. This is for all of you. So he starts with that. And now what he does is he tells a story. He doesn't start with logical propositions about this, this, and this. He tells them a story. And he starts with the deliverance from Egypt. He starts with, they were in Egypt, and then God led them out with an uplifted arm. Why start there? Why not start with Abraham? Why not start with the fall? Why not start with Noah? Who knows? Uh, there's a bunch of different reasons. Maybe the law and prophets that were just read started with the Exodus. And he said, okay, let's start with the Exodus. Let me explain it to you from there. Maybe what was read was Genesis and uh, the story of Abraham. And so he says, okay, that's Abraham, but let me pick up where it goes and tell you from there. So we're not sure why, there's, there's no real clear indication, but he starts with the Exodus. That's where it begins. And if you are not familiar with the story, God had told Abraham in one of his covenants, your children will be in a land not their own for 400 years and then I will deliver them. That's where he's talking about. So even being in the land for 400 years was a covenant promise. Delivering them was a covenant promise. And so that's, that's what God starts with, is he delivers them from, uh, from Egypt. And after they left Egypt, they didn't just march right into the promised land and settle. It says God put up with them in the wilderness. Did, did anybody chuckle? God put up with them? God didn't delight in them. He didn't just fawn over them. He put up with them. And, and that's actually a really good way to say it, because in Psalm 95, verse 10, it says, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But Paul tones that down, doesn't he? He says, God tolerated them for 40 years in the desert. This will become important in a little bit. And then he says, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan. So after they wander in the, in the wilderness for a while, God brings them in finally to the promised land, and he destroyed seven nations. There were people settled in the promised land that God, way back in his promise to Abraham, 400-something years before, 500, 600 years before, had said, the sin of these nations has not reached its full capacity yet. 
I am bearing with them until they get their sins stacked up to a certain point, and then I will bear with them no more. And so now the time has come. He destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. And, and the way he did that was not by raining fire down on all of them. That would have ruined the land for the Israelites. He didn't send a plague and kill them all in no time because Israel would have to move into the promised land and take it over. What God did is God is the one who destroyed the nations. But who carried the sword? Israel, where? Israel carried the sword. They walked in and they killed the people, but they took it over in increments so that the land would not fall fallow, it wouldn't be overrun, that kind of stuff. But it's God who did it. So they move in and they take over the land and Deuteronomy 9 verse 5 says, it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess this land, but because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord your God is driving out, them out before you and that he may confirm his word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So why did God destroy those seven nations? Because they were wicked. Why did, he give the nation, why did he give that land to Israel? Well, not because they were better. He says, look, it's not because of your righteousness that you did it. I did it because I promised I would. I did it for my own purposes. So again, Paul doesn't quite head in that direction. He keeps it positive. He just says, God promised, and that's what he gave. And then he mentions that this all took about 450 years. It did not take 450 years for them to take over the promised land. What it took was 400 years in captivity, 40 years in the wilderness, and then 10 years of conquest taking over the land of Canaan. That's, that's the math behind that. So that's the 450 years. It's from the exodus until the settling of the land. They have arrived. They're in the promised land. Now what? Well, he says that God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, a judge in those days was not somebody in a black robe who sat behind a bench and banged a gavel and said guilty and not guilty. A judge was someone who would lead Israel into battle. He would, take, he would take charge and take them in to defeat their enemies or chase off their enemies. He would have a number of different roles. And so what he's referring to there is this period of the book of Judges. And the book of Judges has just a tremendous amount of stories in it. Someday, maybe I'll preach through that. But it's kind of depressing. <laughs> so if we do, we've got to get to 1 Samuel before we end it there. But that's what he's referring to is these judges ruled over the people. There was no king in Israel. That's what he's talking about. Until he gave them Samuel the prophet. So the book of 1 Samuel starts, and it starts talking about Samuel's birth. And then what we hear in 1 Samuel is that Eli, who was the, the chief priest at the time, he judged Israel for 40 years. That's in 1 Samuel 4.18. Eli was a judge, even though Samuel was there. And then Eli died. And then it says that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life in 1 Samuel 7.15. So as long as Samuel lived, he was a judge, but he was also a prophet. We'll get into the technicalities in one second. So he judged all the days of his life in um, 1 Samuel 8.1. As he's getting old, he's getting ready to retire, he appoints his sons as judges, and his sons are horrible. They're wicked. And so there were continue to be judges, but you see judges begin to fade out as Samuel steps in. And Samuel was really the last of the decent judges because after that, the people say, we want a king. And so that's what happens next is they ask for a king and it says that God gave them the king they asked for. He, they gave him, he gave him Saul to be king. Saul, it says, reigned for about 40 years. 
Um, boy, when you read through 1 Samuel, it doesn't seem like 40 years. Um, I think what's going on with that is not that Paul was wrong, but when David was anointed to be king, Saul had been reigning for a while, and he was just not a very good king and, and kind of egotistical and self-centered, and he made some really horrendous mistakes. And so God says, I'm anointing my king, and he anoints David. Well, do you remember the story of David being anointed king? Where was he? He's the young one. He's out in the fields tending the sheep. So his dad is looking and going, well, he's too young to be anointed king, must be one of these six. So David is anointed as a young man. And then he goes into Saul's service, and Saul decides that he's going to kill him and chases him around for about 14 or 15 years before God killed Saul and put David on the throne. So when you read Samuel, you get this condensed version of what happened to, to uh, David. What you miss is the full history there, everything that went on in between there, because it says that Saul reigned for 40 years, but we only get a small snapshot of it. So that's, that's that story, and then he lands with David. David is someone who is after God's own heart, and that's the blessing. That's, that's tremendous. That's the guy that God wanted on the throne, and this is the guy who's going to fulfill all the covenant promises. He's going to be the one that God had said would be the ruler. The scepter will not depart from between the feet of Judah. David is a son of Judah. Saul was a son of Benjamin. So that, that's what's happening there. And then all of a sudden, Paul hits the fast forward button. We jump from David being king. We skip Solomon. We skip all of the cycles of the kings, the books of Kings and Chronicles. We skip the Exodus. We skip the return from the Exodus. We skip the 400 years of silence, and we go right from David to Jesus. Why would we do that? Why would we skip that portion? Again, I don't know for sure, but here's what I'm thinking. The way Paul talks about it is he's pointing to, to Jesus and he's saying, this is the one because of the promises made to David. This is a historical fact. This is something that we know well. This is what God had said he would do. And so we're going to skip all the bad stuff and we're going to get right to the fulfillment of the promise. And so here comes Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the man of this offspring, the man of David's offspring, um, that God brought to Israel as a savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's, that's, that idea of promise is when God makes a covenant, a covenant is not simply a legal document signed between people. A covenant, when God makes a covenant, he has no equals, does he? You know, nobody's going to say, well, I challenge you on this or something. God comes in simply and he says, here's the covenant I'm going to make, and this is the way it's going to be, especially with David. David had done nothing. He, he had no part in the covenant. God simply showed up and said, you're not going to build my temple. Your son will, and here's the covenant I'm going to make with you. Someone from your offspring will sit on my throne forever. That's the covenant I've made. What's David's role in this? Have some offspring, I guess. That's about it. He doesn't have to live up to any conditions. He doesn't have to fulfill anything. He doesn't have to build anything. He just has to have offspring, and then God's going to take the rest. Those kings, especially, you know, you look at, at uh, Solomon, you go, oh, he was the fulfillment of the promise because he built the temple. Well, yeah, but he didn't reign forever, did he? He's not still sitting on that throne. And, and that temple, is that temple still around? If you haven't noticed, the temple's gone. There's a big, huge rock sitting in where it used to be. There's a dome sitting on top of that rock. That's gone. So was God's covenant promise not fulfilled? Yeah, it was fulfilled because when Jesus came, the real son of David built the real tabernacle. 
God himself dwelt among the people in the person of Jesus Christ. He would be their, their, their Davidic ruler. He would fulfill the covenant promises to David. And so what Paul does real quick is he kind of jumps back and he says, okay, this guy John was there. And John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. But when asked, Paul said, or John said repeatedly, I'm not the one. Somebody's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes because he's so much greater than I. So that's this, this herald is going to come and proclaim the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. So that's the, the story that he tells. Now, it's a story. It's history. It's not a legend. He doesn't talk about some demigod coming down and defeating all these huge rock monsters or something. This all happens in reality. It happens in space and time. The gospel is a story. It's not a legend. The gospel is a story. It is not a history. It's not a, um, a, a set of doctrinal propositions. It's a story of God doing things in time. If you go to Israel and you stick a spade in the ground and you turn it over, you find something that proves the Bible again. They said for a long time, there was no Assyrian Empire. That was just something that the, the Jews made up to, to uh, fabricate this big story of how they wound up you know, coming in back after the exile. Until about the 1930s when somebody turned over a spade and found a gigantic Assyrian Empire. And then the, the story for a long time was there was no King David. We have no archaeological proof that David ever reigned in Jerusalem anywhere. He was just this idealized ruler that Israel would have loved to have had. And then don't you know, somebody turned over a spade and found a rock with David's name on it. It just happens over and over and over again. This is important because when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about our story, we're not talking about some abstract thought. We're not talking about some made-up story. Every single time we turn around, we find more and more corroborating proof that this is what God did. Our God is working in history, in time, in geographical space, in real people's lives, and he's telling this story. So when we tell the gospel, our gospel is a story. It's not a story as in made up like, you know, hey, Halloween's coming. We tell funny stories and scary stories and stuff. This is a story that is evidenced in reality, but it's a story. And so I don't want to bag on another way to tell the, the gospel. God uses all kinds of different ways, but perhaps your idea, you're familiar with the four spiritual laws as a way to share the gospel. I'm not, I'm not bagging on this. Many, many people have been saved by, the, by hearing the four spiritual laws. The problem with this, here's the four spiritual laws. Number one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Number two, man is sinful and separated from God. Number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Number four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Can I get an amen? That is all absolutely true. The problem with this is it's stated as propositional statements. What did, what did Paul just do? He didn't look at these people and say, you're all sinners. You need to turn to Jesus Christ. He told them a story. This is the story you're in. This is what God has been doing in and through you, Israel, and amongst the nations. This is what God has accomplished. The gospel is a story. He's telling his story. And so consider the story that Paul just told. Who is the star of this story? 
Who, who is the, the prime actor in this story? Listen to this. God chose our fathers. God made the people great. God led them out. He put up with them for 40 years. He destroyed seven nations. He gave them the land for their inheritance. He gave them judges and Saul and removed them and gave them David. He gave Israel a savior. Who is the prime actor? Who is the star of our story? It's not us. God is the prime actor. So when these people hear this, they have to understand this is, the, this is the God that you're familiar with. This is what he's been doing. He's been leading to this position. He's been leading all through history to this one cataclysmic, most important event, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the story leads. And so when, for us, when it comes to the story of Jesus Christ, the, the resurrection is a reality. It's not wishful thinking. It's not something, gosh, well, I wish that happened. Wouldn't it be great if? The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event that you must reckon with. And that's exactly what we see through the book of Acts over and over and over again. We are 2,000 years removed from it, so we can get all smart and say, well, it was just a fiction. But as Paul is preaching this, it's 30, 40 years removed from the event at the most. They couldn't make that up. It was, a, it was just like the fact that David ruled. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the story. And it's the story of God working in and through history, of God leading his people, of God accomplishing something in and through his, his people. So what do we do with this story? How, how do we handle this story? Well, there is a book written by a man named Roland Allen. Uh, he wrote it in, in 1912. Uh, Roland Allen was a missionary to China um, until the Boxer Revolution, and then he was thrown out of the country. And so when he came home, he wrote this book called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And I just, I'm rebuked by the title. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It, it was a rebuke because what had been going on in Anglicanism, he was an Anglican minister, right? So what had been going on in Anglican missions was the Anglicans would come into these primitive people, quote unquote, primitive people, and they would preach the gospel, and these primitive people would believe, but they would never put them in leadership. We can't trust them. And so the Anglican missionary would be the head of the church. Um, it was kind of a colonial kind of thing. Now, this wasn't everybody. It wasn't universal. You can think of people like Hudson Taylor and, and, um, and Gladys Elwood and others who didn't walk along those same lines. But what Roland Allen saw was mostly this is what the Anglican missions were doing, was we can't trust these folks. And so when he wrote this book, he's writing to rebuke that. Now, let me read a few quotes from it, and then I'm going to show you what I, why I'm quoting that and what that has to do with us, because we're not going to do that. What can we learn from Roland Allen? Here's what he says. Before AD 47, there were no churches in these provinces. In AD 57, St. Paul could speak as if his work was done and he could plan extensive tours into the far west without anxiety that lest the churches which he had founded might perish in his absence. 1912 writing, what he's saying is, in 10 years, Paul established churches throughout this region and then left. He didn't feel, Paul did not feel that he had to stay in the church at uh, Ephesus because they were in danger of, of losing the gospel or something. He trained him. He sent in men. He said, appoint elders. And then he said, I'm heading off to Spain. The gospel has got to keep going. So that's, that's his charge is Paul was successful in what he did. 
and he left the churches alone. He wrote to them, he encouraged them, he followed up on them, but he didn't feel like he needed to babysit them. Ellen continues, today, 1912 today, today, if a man ventures to suggest that there may be something in the methods by which St. Paul attained such wonderful results worthy of our careful of attention and perhaps of our intimidation, he, that person who makes that suggestion, is in danger of being accused of revolutionary tendencies. You're bucking against the mission society if you decide to do that. Yet, this is manifestly not as it should be. It is impossible but that the account so carefully given by St. Luke of the planting of the churches in the four provinces should have something more than a mere archaeological or historical interest. So again, 1912 writing, it's got to be more than just Paul thought this was really cool history to tell. There's got to be more from, to that. He says, like the rest of Holy Scriptures, it was written for our learning. It was certainly meant to be something more than the romantic history of an exceptional man doing exceptional things under exceptional conditions. So that was Roland Allen's charge in Paul's missionary methods. So let's, let's say, what does that got to do with me? I'm not a missionary in some other country that I've got to establish a church and leave. I'm not leaving y'all, okay? You're stuck with me, sorry. So how can we apply Roland's insights? Well, what we do is not by putting on Roland's coat and trying to be Roland Allen, but hear the wisdom of what he had to say. Look to Paul. How did Paul do these things? How would Paul do something in our context? Well, consider what Paul did when he went to Antioch. If I'm right, he followed a natural connection. The Sergius Paulus family. That was what drew him there. He probably went and talked to them. Did he stay with the rich and the powerful? Did he say, hey, man, I got an in with these folks. Their, their, their family member gave me a, you know, a letter of introduction. Did he stay amongst them? Not at all. He followed where the Lord led. That was one way in which the Lord led. So for us, we might follow Paul's missionary methods by saying, what are the connections that we have? What are the connections that, that we're introduced to? Somebody that we know that knows somebody that knows somebody. Can we follow that? Can we, can we follow along where the Lord might be leading there? That was something that, that they did when we were going to China, is the, they would connect with people and say, well, who do you know then? And, and you'd follow these natural connections. That's not a bad missionary method. That's what we're learning from Paul. So first of all, he would follow that. Then he would not stay strictly with that. He paid attention to the culture. He knew who he was. He was a Jew, so he'd go to synagogue. And as he goes into synagogue and he's presented with the opportunity, brother, do I have a word? Oh, do I? He didn't come up and say, well, you know, we're Jews and Judaism's nice and, and that's great. He instead monopolized on the opportunity he was given. So when the opportunity presents itself to you, you can then monopolize on it. You can take advantage of it. The Lord may have brought you to this position where you're talking with somebody and they go, you know, my life is just falling apart and I don't know what I should do. Let me, let me offer you some hope and some help. Let me try to explain to you the story that I'm part of, that we're all part of, and maybe that can help you understand. It won't make things go away, but maybe it'll help make, make things make sense for you. So you can follow Paul's natural connections. You can follow Paul's opportunity to tell the truth. When it comes to sharing the gospel, like I said, I'm not begging on the four spiritual laws. Read the situation. That's exactly what Paul did. Why didn't he start with creation in his telling in the synagogue? He read the situation. 
What did we just hear? What did they just read? What do these people understand? What are they thinking about right now? That's where I'm going to go. So you might be talking with somebody, and the four spiritual laws are the best answer that they could have right at that moment. Follow the Holy Spirit and give them the four spiritual laws. But more and more in our culture, what we're seeing is, have you noticed how big Hollywood is? How much money is down in Hollywood? A couple of bucks? They're struggling. You know, the studios are about to go out of business, right? Marvel Studios is killing it, man. They are, they are doing these, these superhero movies and raking in billions. What does that tell you about our culture? We like movies. Yeah. We love stories. Because not only do we watch movies, we watch television. And television now is breaking up from the, the broadcasters to streaming services. We love stories. Do you know that the New York Times still has a bestseller list? People still buy books made out of paper and they still read them? That's still a thing. We love stories. We love stories more than we love other things. So if our culture is becoming more enamored of stories, maybe you could tell the gospel in the form of a story. Do you know the story? Can you tell the story arc from creation to Jesus? Sometimes you can't because we've been taught, like in Sunday school, we get uh, Jonah one week and Noah the next. And we don't know how those connect. And then David slays a giant the next one. And we don't know how those connect. But those stories all fit into an arc. God is doing, it's not a telling of a story. It is an enactment of a story. God's doing something from the fall to the return of Jesus. He is up to something. So if you want to learn the story really well, it's going to take time. I can't give you a simple pamphlet that's going to tell you how to tell the story from beginning to end. Instead, what you need to do is know the story. So if I can recommend to you, it's almost the end of the year. Next year, January, start a Bible reading program where you read, if you read three chapters a day, you'll be through the entire Bible in a year. It's doable. It is entirely doable. And if you miss and you go a little bit past the end of next year, that's okay. You don't have to, there's nobody going to judge your calendar if you don't land right at the end of the thing. So there is a Bible reading program called the Chronological One. And what it does is it reorders all the books of the Bible into chronological order. If you read through that in a year, you will get the story. You will get it. You'll understand what's going on because this, the Old Testament starts with Genesis and it doesn't end at Malachi. It ends at Nehemiah. Because that's the end of the story. That's where the Old Testament ends is when Nehemiah, they rebuild the temple and then they're waiting. And then it picks up with the Gospels. Now, I've said this before, it gets a little repetitive. When you get into to the Gospels, you get three and four tellings of the same story and you have to read them over and over again. You know what? I'm kind of dense. And so three or four times it might actually get it to sink in. You know, that, that's possible that could work. When you get to Kings and Chronicles, sometimes you get the story told twice. That's not a bad idea. I, sometimes I have to hear a story twice or three times. So learn that story. This is Paul's method, right? This isn't Tim making this up. This is Paul's method. We just saw him tell that story. Can you tell the story? Can you point to, from the Old Testament, the story looking forward to that greater son of David? That greater son of David who will sit on the throne for eternity, who will never depart from the throne. Can you do that? That's not a bad skill to learn if we're going to follow Paul's missionary methods, not our own. So for spiritual laws, you go for it. If that works, you use that. 
if the person is not quite there yet? Because Paul could go into the synagogue and start talking about God, and do you think they knew who he was talking about? Yeah, they got it. If we go on to ABC campus and we tell people, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, oh, Oprah? They, they have no idea who God is. We have to start much further back. How do you get somebody to see God loves you? Well, they got to know who God is. they got to know what love is. Because love anymore in our culture is sex. And that's not love. So we've got a lot of groundwork to do in our culture because of the changing times, because of the changing situations. So pay attention and see if we can't follow Paul's missionary methods. Roland Allen recognizes this too. One more quote from Allen, because what he says is, Paul's preaching changed the world. It didn't just work only in his time period. Listen to what he says. St. Paul's missionary method was not peculiarly St. Paul's. He was not the only missionary who went about establishing churches in those early days. The method in its broad outlines was followed by his disciples, and they were not all men of exceptional genius. It is only because he was a supreme example of the spirit and the power with which it was used that we can profitably call the method St. Paul's. What he's saying is, you don't have to look at St. Paul and see the super apostle. He's, he's not this, this wonderful example of this, this tremendous person who we could never be like. We're not going to be Paul. Paul was an exceptional man in exceptional times and with exceptional background and education. But his method was not stranded to his abilities and his techniques. Other people, his disciples, could pick it up and go, oh, we can do that too. The primary example of that is the church at Colossae. Because Paul writes to them and he says, I'm writing to you who I've never seen the face of. But here's an established church in the Colossae. They came from somewhere. They didn't just spring up out of the ground unnaturally. Paul's disciples went to Colossae and preached the gospel. So that's the, that's the idea Roland is telling us here is we can do this too. As we look at Paul's preaching, we can do that too. It's available to you. All you have to do is know it. You have to look at it and, and, and bake it into your brain. We don't typically learn by reading things off a wall and going, oh, I got it now. We're all, I'm, I'm assuming you people are like me. If not, I beg your pardon. I've got to hear it a number of times before it sinks in. I'll go over it a couple of times before it really gets a hold of me. So if you have to go over the Bible a couple of times, that's okay too. But what Paul did is, and we're going to see him next in his proof of Jesus as this person, we're going to see him quote scripture in an amazing way. Just mind-blowing. So he knew this stuff. So let's see if we can't do that. So what happens next is he's told the story. And everybody in the synagogue up to that point would be like, wow, really? Jesus is that. Show me. Prove to me that that's, that's this Jesus that you're talking about. So this is where he goes. He addresses him again, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, both groups again. This is not exclusively restricted to Israel. This is all the nations, and he'll prove that in a minute. He says, this, I've been sent with this message of salvation, not this message of entertainment, not this message of history. What I'm about to tell you is the message of salvation, not the restoration of Israel to its former glory, not the power that, that, that Israel is longing for, but salvation. So all of those promises that God's been doing, what they lead to is our salvation. God had, throughout history, repeatedly delivered Israel. And now comes the definitive, the absolute, the real deliverance. 
and that deliverance is in Jesus. So here's the proof. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, and they fulfilled them by condemning him to death. So here's the proof. Those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, that would include Paul. He was in Jerusalem at the time. He watched Stephen's death. There's theories that he may have even had an input on Jesus' execution. No way to prove that. The point is, you folks are out in the diaspora. You are out among the Gentiles. But those in Jerusalem, those at the, the center of our nation, in the temple where they should know better, those folks, because they didn't recognize him. This Jesus came, this Jesus who I just told you the story of, this Jesus who God had promised over and over again, he came, and they didn't recognize him. The promised Messiah, God incarnate, the Son of God, stands before them, and they look him in the face, and they go, you ain't it, and we're going to kill you because you think you are. That's how bad they were wrong. And not only did they not recognize him, the reason they didn't, under, they didn't recognize him is because Paul says they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets. So it's not just they did bad Bible study. It was like, look, God had promised this. This was not something God sprung on them at the last minute. This is something God's been saying all along, and they missed it. They couldn't grasp that this Jesus would come, that he would look like this Jesus. They missed it, even though those prophets are read every Sabbath. Even though they go over this in the Bible over and over and over again, they still blew it. What that tells me is it's not enough to give somebody the information. You can have a head full of knowledge. You can have a perfect understanding of the gospel, and it can damn you to hell because it never gets into your heart. It never gets to the point where you go, not only is that true, it's beautiful, and I love it. There's a quote from John Owen. John Owen is a great Puritan preacher. Um, in the men's group, we were going through his book on, on mortification of sin on killing sin in us. He has a great quote, and he says, I'm paraphrasing horribly because he wrote in 1600 language, which is really hard to say. His basic point was, obedience to Christ ranks zero unless it's based in love. So you could do all of the things Jesus says. You could go through and figure out all the little rules and do all the rules, and Jesus would say, that's not good enough. Because what he wants to see is your heart. You love me. And therefore, you do these things, not you do these things so that you might be good enough. Do you love me? Do you obey me from the heart? That's what's happening with these guys is they heard the reading of the word in the Sabbath every Sunday, and they didn't marry it with a love for God. They married it with a love for their own position and their power. And so what did they do? What's the result of that? They fulfilled the very prophecies. Everything that Isaiah had said in, the, in Isaiah chapter 53 with the suffering servant, everything Zechariah had said, everything the prophets had said about Jesus, these folks who read those same scriptures walked out and carried out the exact same thing. Isn't that amazing? You don't need more information. You need a heart that will follow God, that cares. You can get the information and still blow it. So they killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. After he had taken everything they had to offer, all of the things that he knew he was walking into, they killed him, and Jesus rose from the dead. So this is the, this is the definitive proof that Jesus is the Son of God, because he says not only did he rise from the dead, but he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and now are his witnesses to the people. 
So Jesus hung around with these people for three years, left uh, Galilee with them, walked with them in ministry. He died and he rose and he appeared to them. And they would be the ones who would be able to go, that's not Jesus. Looks like him, but that ain't him. They would know. And they are the ones who recognized him. And now they are his witnesses. How did, how did Acts 1 begin? You will be my witnesses to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Paul is saying. He's right in line with this. They came up with him, and now we bring the good news to you. Paul is a witness too. Paul is not a favorable witness who was really hoping Jesus would rise from the dead. Paul was a hostile witness who would be threatened if Jesus rose from the dead because Paul hated him. And Jesus met him on the road and converted him. And now we, not they, we are witnesses. Paul has now been converted. He's one of them. So here's some of the Old Testament proofs. This is where Paul goes with this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. Why is the resurrection so, so important? Why is it the crux of the, the book of Acts? Here's why. First of all, he quotes three different things. He quotes Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So he points to that and he says, This is speaking of Jesus. Notice a couple of things. You are my son. Not, you became my son today. You are my son, and something happened. Today, I've begotten you. There's a, there's a handful of different ways to understand that. Our confession, our creed, says that Jesus is the eternally begotten son of God. God Jesus originates from God. He is eternally begotten. There was never a time where God wasn't. I just read the most depressing thing in a long time in Christianity today. They did a survey of uh, evangelicals and they said, what are your favorite heresies? Okay, they didn't ask that question, but this is what they said. A large portion are Arians. I know, I'm shocked too. You're probably going, wait, what's an Arian? <laughs> That's not a Nazi. What an Arian is, is they say that there was a time when the son didn't exist. That the first thing God the Father created was the son. That is heresy. That was condemned in the 300s as wrong. So let's get this straight. Psalm 2 says, today, he doesn't say, today you are my son. He says, you are my son. God the Son has always existed. God, has ne God didn't turn into a trinity. God has always existed as a trinity. It's extremely important because what's God, what does Paul, or, uh, John tell us about the nature of God? God is love. Love is other-focused. So the Father could love the Son, and the Son could love the Father, because they're not the same person. If Jesus came into being, then there was a time when God wasn't loved because he didn't have everybody to love. So this is really important. You are my Son. Today I've begotten you. Something happened. Jesus went from being the eternal Son of God to being begotten now. He came into the world. There was a time when Jesus the man didn't exist because he was born in the womb of Mary, but Jesus the person has always existed. So this is the proof. He says Jesus is this one. He is the Son of God. God promised that he had a son. He's had a, he said he had a son back in Psalm 2. That's nothing new. Second, Jesus was raised from the dead. To prove that, he quotes Isaiah 55.3. And when you read Isaiah 55.3, what it's talking about is this covenant that God made with David. Jesus will receive those covenant promises. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Dead kings don't sit on thrones for eternity. 
Even their bones eventually will blow away. But his son, who will sit on David's throne, will be eternal. And the resurrection from the dead is what puts him on the throne and means he will never die again. This is the promise to David. This is the promise that God made in his covenant to David. He said, for David, after he has served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David wasn't it. David died and his body decomposed. He wouldn't be the one that sat on the throne forever. But this Jesus will be. He will not undergo decay. Why? It's impossible because he's died and he rose again. The resurrection authenticates his role as the Davidic inheritor. The, the inheritor of the, the Davidic covenant. And Jesus would not rot in a tomb. He quotes Isaiah or Psalm 16.10. And David wrote that psalm. David said that. But David knew he wasn't saying it about himself because there was a day when David would breathe his last, lay down and die. He wasn't anticipating to live forever. But Paul says, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Fulfilling the promise in, in Psalm 16. So this is the, the proof text. He goes to the scriptures and he lifts those up and he says, this is why Jesus is that. Because God had promised it. God had been saying it. God had been working on it all along. So really quickly, the application. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Is he no longer addressing the Gentiles? I don't think so. I think when he says, let it be known to you, brothers, is he's including them as well. Even though you haven't converted to Judaism, let it be known to you that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by everyone who believes or and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which could not be freed they could not be freed by the law of Moses look you guys your problem is not that Israel is under Roman domination that's not your problem that's not your biggest problem your problem is not you're dispersed amongst the land that's not your biggest problem that's not the problem Jesus came to fix immediately. Here's the problem. Salvation is offered in this man, and let it be known that through this man is forgiveness of sins. So if you share with somebody whose life has just fallen apart, everything is horrible, that is terrible. And weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, but the real issue, the underlying problem here is sin. And that's what Jesus came to fix. Let it be known that forgiveness is through him, period. That's the four spiritual law, right? Jesus is the only way to have your sin dealt with. Did Paul start with that? No, but he certainly ends with it. He brings them to that point. And he says that by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything that the law of Moses couldn't free you from. Now, is he dissing the law of Moses? Is he saying, forget the law of Moses? There's something wrong with the law. He doesn't say a negative word against it. In all of his writings, he doesn't say, oh, the law was stupid. What he says is the law could only do so much. It could only take you to this point. That point is you become painfully aware of your sin. That was as far as the law could take you. And it provided temporary remediation for your sin. You'd, you'd offer a, a lamb, and that would take care of that sin that you did. But next week when you did it again, go grab another lamb. It couldn't take away the sin. That's what he's saying about being freed from is we need to be freed from not just this particular sin that I've done today, but sin in general. The law can't do that. So what I want you to understand this morning is understand what God wants. Know what he's after. 
Live according to his purposes, his rules, his approach, but don't for a second think by doing that that you're okay with God. You won't do it perfectly. You won't do it. There will be sins that you will do and you won't even notice you did them. What do you do about that? Christianity is not a performance-based religion. Jesus came in and he said, brothers, I will take care of your sin. I will take the full burden, the full brunt of it for you. I will set you free from that. Therefore, you can live with me. You can walk with me. You can go to God as your father. And you can strive to not sin because now you don't have to be undone by every sin. Christianity is not performance-based. It's faith. It's trusting Jesus. Yes, I believe you did that for me. There is forgiveness of sins in him alone, and the law can't do it. That's why in Hebrews 10.3 it says, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You can't do enough to atone for your sin. Somebody had to step in and do it on your behalf. The eternally begotten, eternally existing Son of God came, he was begotten, he was born in the flesh, took on a human nature, bore the brunt of your sin, and rose again over it. That is the good news. And so Paul ends with a warning. He says, beware. Look, Jesus came to, to save you from what the law couldn't do, so now beware, verse 40. Therefore, lest what is said of the prof in the prophets should come about. All right, so again, is God going to be surprised that some people are going to reject this offer? No. He spoke about it in the prophets a long time ago. He quotes Habakkuk. He quotes Habakkuk. It's not like he grabbed a Bible off the pew. They had big, huge scrolls. Paul quoted, somebody quote for me Habakkuk without looking in the Bible, other than this verse. I haven't a clue. Paul was exceptional. He quotes Habakkuk and he says, listen, look, you scoffers, and be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you it. So he, he says, look, you scoffers. Now, if you go back and look at Habakkuk, that's not what Habakkuk said. Habakkuk said, look among the nations. So what Paul is doing is he's not quoting it wrong. I would. <laughs> Paul, what he's doing is he's interpreting the story of Habakkuk. Where is he now? Where is he standing? He's not in Jerusalem amongst a bunch of Jews in the temple, isolated from the nations. He is standing in mixed company, brothers, Jews and Gentiles. And he says, look, God is going to do a thing amongst the nations, He's, and there are going to be scoffers. There are going to be people who are going to look at this and say, he can't work among the Gentiles. And wait a minute, we have the law of Moses. The law of Moses should be sufficient. So as he looks at the crowd, he says, don't be like the scoffers who are not going to believe what Zechariah said. Be astonished and perish. Don't look at this and go, how could he do that and die? Because what's happening, it goes right back to the beginning. God is doing a work that you will not believe. God is doing the work. So as these scoffers oppose Paul, as the scoffers oppose Barnabas, as they oppose the disciples, as they oppose these things, are they opposing Paul? This is God's initiative. God has done this. God will do these things. God is working among the nations. God is doing this thing. So if you oppose him, guess what? You're opposing God. That is not a good place to be. That's why scoffers perish. So he warns them, beware. Don't be like that. Don't f Remember I told you earlier, 
that the leaders and the people in, in Israel who heard the law, who heard the prophets, fulfilled it all and killed him anyway. Don't be like that. Habakkuk is telling you right now, don't be a scoffer. God is doing a thing. So that's the appeal Paul makes. That's the appeal that he's, he's calling them to. This is all God's initiative. Don't go against God. You can oppose me and live. If you oppose God, it has eternal consequences. It's, it's that important. The law won't do it. The law won't do it. Whatever law it is, it won't do it. The best law can do, the best I'm going to live up to Jesus' expectations can do for you is remind you you can't live up to Jesus' expectations. The best the law can do for you is grab you by the hand and say, really, you are that bad. Come here and let me show you a savior. That's the best the law can do for you. If you stand still and go, I'm good enough, I can perform well enough, I can take care of this myself, you'll miss the boat. You'll fulfill what Habakkuk has warned us about. So that's Paul's application for them. Is it an application for us today? Even though we're not Jews sitting in a synagogue listening to God's law? Yeah, absolutely. Because we're, we're more sophisticated. We just substitute some other law. Don't be like that. Don't, don't let this opportunity pass. Paul has come and preached to us salvation in one man. Let's accept that. Let's, let's engage that. That's where salvation can be found. What are the results of this wonderful sermon? I'm not going to tell you until next week. <laughs> Got to come back next week to get the rest of the story. I just turned into Paul Harvey for the rest of the story. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this great insight, this moment to really stop and focus on Paul's message, to hear his preaching so clearly, and to understand what was on his heart and his mind as he brought the message of salvation to the world. Lord, I thank you for your servant, Roland Allen, who, who witnessed in um, China for a number of years, and who you used to, to rebuke the church about, about human-invented missionary methods, about missionary methods that uh, were more practical or more cultural-based than, than those you would have. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hear Alan's rebuke today and that we would follow Paul's preaching style, his approach, his, his sensitivity to the people he's, he's speaking to. But, Lord, most importantly, I pray that we would follow Paul's bravery in speaking. And, Lord, I pray that for myself because I'm a big chicken. And, um, and I pray that you would equip me and fit me to follow in those footsteps, to re be reminded that those who oppose the gospel, the worst they can do to me is ridicule me. They can turn me away. At, at the height, at the absolute worst, all they can do is kill me. But they cannot steal my joy. And so, Lord, would you give me that, that surety, that, that firmness? Would you give that to all of us to be reminded that it's okay to tell people about Jesus, even if they don't like it? because you never know who will. So Lord, would you continue to do your purposes in bringing the nations in? And Lord, thank you that law can't save us. It can't. It's not that it won't. It can't save us. So Lord, we need not even look there. Instead, we find salvation in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we praise you and we thank you for coming, Jesus. We ask all of these things in your name, that your name may be known amongst all peoples. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.